Welcome to the third season of PEBC's Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. My name is Michelle Morris-Jones, and in this season, I'll be sharing conversations with educators and leaders who are making schools and classrooms more phenomenal than ever before by implementing community, planning, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment practices that promote agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. I am honored to share these conversations of innovation and passion with all of you. Thank you so much for listening in. It is a great pleasure to welcome Wendy Ward-Hoffer back to the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. Wendy is the Senior Director of Content and Publications at PEBC and the author of Phenomenal Teaching. In addition to Phenomenal Teaching, Wendy has written a number of books about science and math pedagogy. As a leader of STEM initiatives at PEBC, Wendy inspires our community to consider the importance of productive identities for both students and teachers. Wendy, welcome back to the podcast. So what have you been working on since last time we heard from you? Oh, Michelle, it seems like forever ago. First, thank, I you, know. for, thank you for having me. Um, it has been a fascinating couple years here. Uh, I think the main thing I've really been learning, as so many of us, is first how to transition from what we did and loved in person into working in uh, remote settings with folks. And now I feel like I'm learning how to transition back and uh, bring things to life and kind of carry what worked well and what we did learn from that remote stage forward. Um, but I haven't got it licked yet, and, and uh, I know we're all grappling. Absolutely, and I think that's I mean, such a great word to use to describe how so many educators and school leaders are feeling right now, kind of grappling as we come back to that more traditional in-person instruction, but knowing that teachers and kids and communities and leaders have experienced so much in the last couple of years and you know, a lot of interruptions into their kind of educational kind of trajectory, if you will. With that, one thing I'm hearing from a lot of teachers is that they're worried about kids' um, self-efficacy, around engagement, just what does it mean to be a learner? And so I wanted to reach out to you to have a conversation today about STEM identity and what are the ways in which we can, in our classrooms and in our schools, really foster those productive STEM identities that you write about in your book, Cultivating STEM Identities. And I just want to share this quote with the listeners because it just made me made me pause and it made me really think about my day-to-day life. And so you wrote, we are all scientists, mathematicians, engineers, and technology creators and users making sense of our worlds every day. And you encourage teachers to embrace a productive STEM identity to benefit their students. So I'd love to start off our conversation by just diving into what do you mean by STEM identity? What is STEM identity? Uh, I mean, first, I would just want to say identity is just our sense of ourself, right? Our orientation towards the world, our beliefs about ourselves, our sort of story we tell ourselves about who we are, what we can do, and perhaps what we can't do. Putting STEM in front of that idea of identity, uh, to me, is really about two things. It's sort of our orientation towards those STEM subjects, science, technology, uh, engineering, mathematics, 
as well as um, what our beliefs are uh, about our capability in those subject areas. So if I have a productive STEM identity and the bicycle tire goes flat, I say, oh, look at this, a chance to flex my STEM identity and do a little repair job. And I grab my toolkit and I get to work. If my STEM identity is perhaps less efficacious and I get that flat tire, I may throw up my hands and turn it over to someone else in the family, take it to the bike shop. I'm just sort of going to stand down when it comes to uh, engaging in a STEM challenge. That's interesting because like, that's a great day-to-day example of that idea of having a strong efficacy, like sense of I can solve this problem, I can attempt this task versus, like you said, passing it off. And I have to admit that sometimes I um, will pass off reading directions. I don't mind like putting together, you know, the furniture that comes in the flat box, but I do not want to read the directions. I like have the worst like sense of self-efficacy around that, but I love to build things. And so I think this is a really important to kind of explore in our day-to-day lives, but also in the classroom. So why does it matter? Why is it important to cultivate or to foster a productive STEM identity? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we may have someone that loves to read the directions and build the furniture um, in our house, or we may have someone who's you know, does a snap up job with the bicycle tire. And then it's really not an issue. It can just be sort of shared responsibility. And yet there are areas of our lives where uh, our STEM identity is important, our personal STEM identity. Um, One obvious one is in school, right? Um, Robert Moses, amazing civil rights leader who uh, engaged in created a project called the Algebra Project, recognized decades after sort of the Equal Rights Act amendment had been passed that there still wasn't parity in achievement. And when he looked at the data, he recognized that really math and math achievement had become uh, a gateway that many students of color were not passing through at the same rate as um, students of other backgrounds. And so this limited their opportunities achievement, as well as um, post-secondary chances, career chances. So we know just from looking at the statistics on like who's taking AP math, who's going on to college, who's entering a STEM profession, what are we earning as STEM professionals, that there is a massive equity issue there uh, that really we can address by cultivating our learners' STEM identities. Um, So that's one reason it matters. But there are other reasons. Um, So, Wendy, equity is such an important reason. What other reasons exist for promoting productive STEM identities? I mean, equity in terms of employment opportunities, in terms of achievement, that's definitely one area that I would highlight. And then another area related to equity is this idea of health literacy, Um, In 2015, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services did a survey nationwide assessing um, what they called health literacy, which is really conceived as one's ability to understand, make meaning, and make informed health decisions. Guess, Michelle, guess what percent of Americans uh, they consider health literate as a result of that survey? I'm going to go with 17%. 
ah, you're an optimist. Um, really? Yes. And I know you were trying to pitch it low. Uh, but actually, health literacy nationwide is considered tw- at a 12% rate. And this is highly problematic when we think about the implications, as we saw during the pandemic, the implications for access to care, uh, management of chronic conditions, and even that shame or uncertainty that can come with um, managing Uh, a health circumstance when one isn't confident in their ability to communicate with medical professionals, to ask the questions they need to ask, or to understand um, the explanations that they're receiving. So this is another area where STEM identity has huge implications. Um, Even if we look at the fatality rate in COVID, that's, I believe, in part a result of poverty and racism and other issues. But uh, health literacy is a component of both of those. Um, so those are two really strong equity reasons. And then, you know, a, another reason I like to put out there that STEM identity is important is just that reality of the problem solving that we're going to need to see in our lifetimes, in our children's lifetimes, you know, pull open the news every day. And there are many, many problems that are STEM related that we will need to be addressing in the coming years. Um, Problems related to energy availability, access to um, natural resources in ways that are less damaging, issues around global warming, or I'm sorry, climate change, and the ways in which we're able to respond and engineer solutions to these problems. I I don't wanna go on with the problems, but I do believe that our, um, our children, our students today are going to have lives as problem solvers where they're going to be grappling and addressing many, uh, many challenges that we're just beginning to recognize. I think that's such an interesting aspect to point out is that really, I mean, I think as people, as a society, we are always engaged in some kind of problem solving. And I think, you know, not to kind of hone in on the pandemic again and again, but the last two years have really illustrated the importance of problem solving, of being able to be flexible, of being able to see multiple solutions, to find multiple solutions. And I think also the equity piece that you elevated for us, that STEM identity or having a grasp on science, technology, engineering, and math, and being able to really apply that schema to our everyday lives is critical, especially as, you know, as children, as students, and as adults functioning in the world. So I guess my question for you is if we are, you know, teachers or school leaders or school professionals, how do we build productive STEM identities in ourselves if our efficacy is kind of low in this area? Because I know there are a lot of teachers who will, who will share with me in coaching conversations that they're not particularly comfortable or confident with their science or their math instruction. Yes, I am aware, Michelle. And it is not just... You've heard that too? I've heard that too. And it's not just those few folks that have chatted with you. It's kind of a, um, I would say a national issue is a lot of us um, grew up in a society that maybe downplayed the value of these subjects or um, created stereotypes that led us to believe we were not the chosen ones with access in these areas um, or just 
put these on a pedestal as far too difficult for the majority of us, whatever the reason, um, our society has not yet supported us as um, believing in ourselves as STEM learners, most of us. And so there's a lot of work to do um, to address that. And as you say, some of it we need to do for ourselves and mm -hmm. some of it we can do for our students. Um, so in terms of our own STEM identities, I think a first step is just kind of noticing, you know, paying attention. Do I shy away from these topics? Do I uh, feel challenged or stressed by them? And then finding ways to sort of lean into that challenge. Not saying we have to just snap our fingers and switch on a dime, but rather than dropping the bicycle and, you know, handing it over to someone else, maybe being willing to sit alongside and, and learn some of the steps of that process of tire repair or being willing to look something up that we're not sure about and becoming curious perhaps about some STEM topics that might seem relevant or important in our context. Um, so that's a first step. And then I think another step is really, as we do that, embracing STEM as problem solving. It's not about needing to know everything. It's not about needing to have an encyclopedic understanding of chemistry or other content areas, but just that willingness to make effort and uh, be persistent and be creative as thinkers. Those are really the key features of a STEM identity that we can cultivate. Because look, there's too much knowledge for us all to know all the math or all the science or what have you. And yet uh, we can be curious and we can dive in rather than um, avoiding. So those are some thoughts on sort of what we can do individually and then take that into our classrooms and, and into our communities and go ahead and set an example for students um, of having a productive STEM identity. So that might be coming in and saying, oh my gosh, you guys, I got this flat tire. You won't believe it. There I was on the side of the road and here's what I did. And it was difficult and I was frustrated. And then I did this and, you know, being willing to set, uh, set an example, not of, oh, I am so perfect. I have it all figured out, but like I'm a person who meets challenges and perseveres and you, my learners, you, my children can also embrace them in these ways. I think that's really interesting because really what I think what you just mentioned was really heighten our curiosity and then our risk-taking. When do we explore? What do we want to pursue? You know, when we're doing that kind of, you know, evening phone scrolling that so many people do, it's maybe, you know, looking at an article or a different video that, you know, something that's connected to, to STEM that's really foster that curiosity in you and kind of figuring out like, oh, what, well, what can I find out about this particular topic or this particular issue? And then, like you said, not shying away from STEM challenges. So then we can become those dispositional models for our learners. You guys are never going to guess what I did this weekend. Or did you know, blah, 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 blah. So there's those opportunities, like you said, for us just to take some time to really engage in some of that STEM exploration, if you will, so that we can then share that curiosity and that energy and that problem solving with our kids. 
Absolutely, Michelle. And really that, that being an example is one of the most important things we can do beyond any curriculum, any project, any activity. Uh, some research by Sean Bylock at the University of Chicago showed that kids, students almost by osmosis pick up um, the stereotypes, the beliefs of their teachers and display those in their achievement in math in particular was her research, but just that um, students integrated those stereotypes and acted on them when, for example, um, their teacher was more anxious about math um, and it was strongly correlated by gender. So um, female identifying teachers, uh, female identifying students, there was a high correspondence of the acceptance of that stereotype, whereas the male identifying students um, in that group may not um, have been as susceptible. But there is a huge correlation um, to how we integrate the beliefs of the adults around us as children and then how we act those out. You know, the, the Pygmalion effect, I'm sure uh, folks have heard of that research that was done years ago uh, in Northern California, where they essentially went to a teacher. This is illegal now, but this was like, I don't know, eight, 50 years ago. Uh, they went to a teacher and said they had two groups of students who were pretty much on par on their standardized assessments. But they said um, to one teacher of one group, uh, these kids, they're amazing. They're brilliant. They're just on the brink of colossal achievement. And oh, this year is going to be a breakout year for them. We're so excited you're teaching them. And then in the classroom next door with students of similar ability and similar achievement, they said, oh yeah, this is just an average group. Well, guess what happened? By the end of the year, those students whose teacher really believed in them as capable high flyers, zoom, they had uh, astronomical growth. And the other kids kind of, you know, hunkered along. How does this relate to STEM identity? This has to do with how our beliefs influence what we expect of our students. So if we're shying away from science and keeping the tubs on the top shelf and avoiding getting our hands dirty or getting confused, um, our, our kids are picking up on that and they're inferring from that um, that they may not be capable in the STEM areas with detrimental consequences. Well, absolutely. And it's in the short term in that student achievement with whatever those curricular standards are or, or outcomes for the year, but then also that long term, which is probably even more concerning that if I believe as a little person that I am not good at math or not good at science or that I shy away from engineering, if that belief becomes kind of ingrained in my own personal set of beliefs as a young student, it probably will be hard for me to change my mind as I progress and try, you know, more challenging topics. And Absolutely. And there's actually uh, research that shows that by eight years old, so by third grade, uh, half of our students have made up their minds about themselves as STEM learners, which is kind of a, a little concerning to me. I mean, it's very concerning to me, also given that research suggests that it's those early elementary teachers who will often confess to their own low efficacy in these subjects. 
So here's a key opportunity to really shift the balance for those who work with uh, younger learners is to look for ways to embrace STEM identity uh, yourself and then also create um, moments of joy and creative problem solving for students that can uh, strengthen their own sense of possibility in the STEM fields. So, Wendy, you've shared like three or four amazing research studies, which is one of the reasons why I love to just sit down and chat with you on any day. This is particularly exciting today. But just this idea that there's you know some really solid research behind the importance of cultivating productive STEM identities for ourselves and for our learners. I'd love for you to share, because I know you're in lots and lots of classrooms and you work with lots of teachers. What are some ways in which we can foster that STEM identity development in our learners beyond being a positive example? Like, what do what have you seen? What are you excited about? What are some ideas that teachers might want to try? Because really, I mean, you just you just offered a great invitation for teachers of our youngest learners, and I would assume all the way up through that educational path, even into college, that there might be some moves we might make or some pedagogical decisions or some planning considerations that really can inspire that joy and that creative problem solving that you just mentioned. Absolutely. And Michelle, to, to just go back to research for a moment on that question, um, there was a study conducted uh, by the National Girls Collaborative where they uncovered that students with the highest confidence in STEM uh, the majority of those students had experienced STEM as creative problem solving or creative learning. Uh, whereas students who had not experienced STEM in, in a creative manner where it was an open-ended task, where they were able to um, propose and test different solutions and ideas, those students had half the self-confidence in those um, in those content areas, and there was parity across genders with that study. And so what that suggests to me is the more often we can provide tasks with what Dr. Joe Bowler calls a low floor and a high ceiling, there's access for all of our students, and create tasks where there's no one right answer or no one right way. Um, the extent that we do that, we are really cultivating students' engagement with the STEM content, students' enjoyment of the STEM content, as well as um, those muscles to think in the creative ways that, that we all need to think to be problem solvers. So one example um, in my work in schools is uh, recently I was talking with a high school teacher about her upcoming electricity unit. And there were a few different tasks and activities that she identified where students were building circuits and, you know, consider, she was considering her materials and how she might invite learners to do that. And I suggested, well, what if you didn't give them the directions, you know, how to build a parallel, how to build a series? What if you just gave them some stuff, some wires, some batteries, some bulbs, and some tape and see what they might figure out. Uh, and that felt a little concerning to a teacher who was used to providing the recipe. And yet uh, when I spoke to her the following week, she was really excited about what the kids had done and their enthusiasm, 
that came forward and their curiosity about electricity uh, that emerged through this experience of creatively creatively looking for ways. How can I brighten a bulb? How can I get a bulb to light? How can I get it to light more brightly? Uh, what are the problems with my circuit when my bulb is not lighting? So these kinds of questions uh, were a nice example. So that's kind of an older student materials heavy example. But even with younger students, there's lots of space for this. Um, I think about challenges like how, how many different ways can you make 10? You know, what are all the ways? And you might start thinking, oh, one plus nine, two plus eight. Well, yes. And then what else? Like, right, 20 minus 10, 100 divided by 10. There are so many ways to make a number. Uh, and that, those kinds of explorations where kids get to jump in, be creative, flex their thinking, uh, definitely lead to that experience that builds their confidence and their joy and ultimately their identity as STEM learners. Wendy, thank you. And thank you for pointing out two different examples. I mean, one for the secondary crowd and then one for the elementary crowd. And also, I really appreciated the way that you, you pointed out something that was um, you know, super specific to some content, like you said, with a lot of materials and some you know, pretty high-level content standards, as well as something that doesn't require a lot of materials or setup, but is also equally important in terms of number sense. So I really appreciate both of those examples. So if I'm a teacher and I'm thinking, okay, I want to give this a go, this is going to be a little bit of a shift for me. I know that your book actually is a wonderful resource because there's so many examples. You have really, really specific specific examples in that particular text, which, you know, for anyone who didn't catch it at the beginning of our conversation, the name of this particular text is Cultivating STEM Identities. I'm also thinking about like planning. Like, one thing I just heard, like when you shared the example around electricity, is you kind of swapped the way in which we might deliver content. So rather than delivering content first and then having an experience, you advocated actually in both examples for kiddos to have an experience first and then to kind of reinforce with some content and some noticing and naming. What other planning suggestions do you have for teachers who are like, okay, I kind of am getting the gist of this, but what else do I need to think about as a designer? Mm. Great question. And I you did highlight something that has been a perennial debate sort of in the field of science instruction, <laughs> that question of, do I do the explanation first or do I do the experience first, right? And right. Um, my personal recommendation is always lead with an experience because that's when I'm going to care. I am not going to enjoy your slides on electricity until I've, you know, managed that battery myself. Um, in terms of other planning suggestions, I think a huge um, opportunity that we have with our STEM instruction is really to look for what David Perkins called life-worthy applications, right? Where does this happen in the real world? When in the real world might this be relevant? Um, I was talking with a colleague last week about a unit she was coming up on uh, related to volume, volume of geometric solids, cylinders, and different shapes. And uh, I recalled a, a wonderful 
invention that is used uh, in different regions of the world, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, where there's limited water supply. They've developed this thing called a cue drum, which is essentially like a wheel that one can tote down to the water source, fill with water, and roll back to, um, to their home, really diminishing that need to hurt, you know, carry jugs on one's head or one's shoulder and uh, go daily. But they can carry 50 liters in this cue drum. And so I talked with this colleague about the opportunity to use something like that, which is a geometric solid whose volume is relevant in, in real life. How much water can I bring home in one trip? Not only as a hook, but also as a um, culminating project for, for a unit. And, you know, we can look at, okay, if a standard Q drum has 50 liter capacity, what dimensions, what might we need for a Q drum with a 60 liter capacity? So now I'm applying all my knowledge of dimensions and how to um, find the volume of a of a cylinder inside a cylinder, which is subtracted, and it just becomes a complex and interesting math problem, but one where learners could really see that has some relevance um, in the real world. An another example I might give, uh, you know, simple engineering project, but uh, during COVID, uh, many of us were leery of Halloween, right? We didn't want the the, to get too close to each other and give the candy and pass the germs. So even that idea of a, a candy shooter, right? A lot of families <laughs> built that and saw that and we built one at our house, but it became uh, a little engineering design task. Like how can I make a device that can deliver this treat safely to the child at the other end? And, and that's, that's relevant to a kid, right? That's so fun and it's interesting and there's candy and so these are just a couple ideas of how we can take what might seem like a very rote, you know, textbook lesson on volume or gravity or what have you and put it into a context that um, can feel interesting to learners and that can give them some connection, some motivation. And also, I, I just have to add, as I'm you know, listening and kind of in my own imagination, seeing all of this happen, I'm going to have to advocate for understanding because I think mm -hmm. that by doing and by being engaged and thinking about real problems in the real world, my hunch and what I've seen in classrooms and know from my own teaching experience is that students will have a deeper understanding of our content goals and they'll be able to not only retain, but reapply their understanding in novel circumstances. Have you experienced that as well? Or what, what is your thought on understanding? I'm so glad you brought that up, Michelle, because I think what can happen um, when we get really excited about math or science and real world and context and three-dimensional creations is we can get really focused on the hands-on aspect of a project. But what we know is that the, the understanding really comes when we take the time to reflect and mm. discuss and explore the meaning of what just happened before us. So that's why, you know, my, my book about math is called Minds on Mathematics is because I was trying to draw a distinction between hands-on and minds-on 
because essentially we need both. So, I mean, we could do the Halloween candy shooter in a way of just like, here's some junk, build a candy shooter. Hey, that one's pretty, good job, move on. And that would be an enjoyable task that may elevate someone's STEM identity. But really when we're targeting understanding, we want to slow down. We want to talk about, well, why is that, you know, is that working well? Why is it working well? What might we need to ingest to make it work better? And here's this idea of gravity and here's this idea of friction. And how do these concepts apply in the context of this task we're trying to do? And then, you know, with the engineering design process, potentially after one iteration, getting some feedback, making a new plan. How else could I make this even better? Um, and so through those sorts of conversations, maybe some journaling, maybe some drawing, maybe some collaborative critique, um, through that sort of work, we can really leverage those hands-on experiences, those creative experiences um, to deepen students' understanding of concepts applied in a relevant context. Absolutely. And I think also with that, you're going to see just that increase in academic language. You're going to see heightened discourse. I mean, anytime we ask kids to reflect on what happened and then provide some disciplinary language for it, I think that their ability to go into depth increases because they now have the words to describe the phenomena that they just experienced or created for themselves. So really, in a way, advocating for high quality tasks or engagements with reflection over just a vast quantity of activities. Absolutely. And I, I think that's really one of the biggest challenges for, um, for all teachers today is just the volume of content or standards mm -hmm. that one is expected to address. I often have made the joke, you know, I, I never met a teacher who said, oh my gosh, it's April and I'm, I'm already out of stuff to do. You know, we've covered all the standards and done all the, you know, workbook activities. And now which, you know, that doesn't happen, right? Every uh, resource that we're provided with has more like two years worth of material <laughs> jammed into one year. So as a teacher, we can feel that compulsion of, oh, I can't slow down and, um, really delve into this with understanding because there's so much I need to cover, right? That's definitely a tug of war that we've all experienced in the classroom. And yet what we know, particularly in math, is that if we do fewer problems, yet with deeper understanding, we gain more in terms of student retention of knowledge and comprehension of those concepts moving forward. So we could really think about taking an act, you know, one STEM learning activity and milking it, right? Rather than, oh, you know, we're going to rush between all these points. Build the spaghetti bridges, make graphs, use the scales to measure, talk about uh, all these concepts in uh, physics as, as they relate. Do some scientific drawing, some illustration, use a ruler, measure. You know, there are so many important standards that could be tied in to one rich exploration. And I would really encourage teachers to look at that as an avenue forward. 
Well, Wendy, you have given us so much to think about today. I, I always like to wrap up these conversations with a call to action. And in some ways, I mean, you just provided one, just this idea of almost multidisciplinary, right? Like when you said, like, get out the rulers, get out the scales, make the graphs. It really is about depth. And it's about being engineers or scientists or mathematicians and actually taking that time to engage in one high quality, juicy experience is going to provide so many opportunities for authentic learning. But rather than me sharing the call to action, because that's something I just heard, and that's something that really resonated for me personally as you were talking, I'm curious to hear from you. What is your call to action to, you know, we look at this remaining couple months of the school year and you know, knowing that teachers are like you, like you just mentioned, like there's so much content and so much curriculum. And most of my planning conversations with teams right now who are engaged in their kind of fourth quarter unit planning are really, really feeling that pressure to cover. Um, and so you've really helped us think about, you know, depth over breadth as well. But again, to you, what is your call to action to our listeners? What would you like them to consider? Such a great question, Michelle. One thing I just want to acknowledge is the extreme challenge that all educators have been enduring for these last couple of years and how stressful that's been. And I do not want to add more to folks' plates. I, I want to just honor and appreciate all the incredible work that our colleagues have been doing with their students. Um, and yet, if I had one recommendation in terms of uh, building STEM identity I would say go for the joy, you know, find something fun and fabulous that you and your students can get excited about uh, that, as I was describing, can weave together multiple challenges and is really going to be like a, an enjoyable uh, challenge to meet as a group and spend time on that. Because when we fall in love with something we learn so much more than if it's just the thing we need to do or we have to do, right? So I would say find something exciting and fun and cool. And I'm not sure what that might be for you. I know for me as a teacher, some years it was the egg drop, some year it was mousetrap cars, sometimes it was um, my favorite one, two, three, four puzzle, but just great ways to get everyone jumping in together. Um, and then the other thing I would love to say, Michelle, just in terms of teachers' efficacy and sense of ourselves is uh, we can never know the long-term impacts of the work we're doing every day. And I think about, you know, people like Jonas Salk, who found the or created the vaccine for polio in collaboration, of course, with many scientists. But his second grade teacher probably had no idea he had that in him, right? He, may, he might have been a little rugrat in middle school. We don't know. But just having that idea that among us, among our students, are the problem solvers of the future. And, and we, have no, uh, we have no way of knowing what problems they'll encounter, what creativity they'll bring. But we can really... Um, extend ourselves to them, uh, excuse me, extend our belief in them by offering them worthy challenges. And to that, I just want to add a quick story, um, Michelle, because 
This one always makes me smile. A few years ago, uh, I was in an elevator uh, down on Grant Street, an elevator you know, and got in the elevator with a young woman, and she reached up and pushed the button for the ninth floor. And I was heading to the fourth floor, and I'd never been to the ninth floor, so I struck up a conversation. Hey, what's up there on the ninth floor? And she said, uh, oh, it's a small engineering company. I said, oh, cool. And are you an engineer? I asked her. And she said, yes. And you were my middle school science teacher. Well, <laughs> I know. And I didn't recognize her. You know, she, she had been kind of shy and quiet in middle school. But, and she had grown up, of course, and looked quite different. It was, she must have been in her late 20s at this time. But uh, it was just an excellent reminder for me that the seeds we plant uh, can go on and flourish in unimaginable ways. Mm. Wendy, that is a wonderful story and such a great reminder of, like you said, you just you just never know. And so thank you today for sharing so much of your heart and mind with us and also providing so many ideas for our hands. I just have really, really enjoyed this conversation. And I know that I just want to, you know, start thinking about what are those worthy challenges that are joyful that can cultivate STEM identities. And I just really appreciate you. So thank you. Thank you so much for the conversation, Michelle. I, I really uh, enjoyed talking with you and I wish every teacher who's listening just all the very best. You are a gift and we're so grateful for your work. Thank you so much for listening in. The Phenomenal Teaching Podcast is brought to you by PEBC, Public Education and Business Coalition, and is intended to elevate the strands of the PEBC teaching framework, which is illustrated in Wendy Wardhofer's book, Phenomenal Teaching. PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, but works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. PEBC provides customized on-site professional development and coaching for schools and districts, facilitates a variety of institutes and seminars, and offers an array of online learning experiences for all educators. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org. Thank you.